0: Please remain standing as we read God's word together. We're reading this morning in Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 13. Matthew 5:13. God's word says, "You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything, except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden." Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated, and uh, you will just join me in a time of prayer uh, before we get started. Father, God, we thank you for your word. Father, we thank you for the Sermon on the Mount. God, we thank you uh, for who you are and for who Jesus is. And we pray, Father, that we will be transformed more into his likeness, that you will correct false ideas, Father, that you'll sure up truths, Father, that we have known that you will help us, God, to be your people in the way that you envision. Lord, we love you. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. Well, I guess you all might as well know, um, uh, we are having baby number four and uh, I delayed for a long time announcing that just because I'm still coping with it in my own head. Um, I thought we'd be let out on good behavior, but God decided to give us a good gift instead. So, anyway, we're gonna we're gonna be raising another little one. Um, we don't know what to the, what the, what to the name him yet or her yet. Um, we're thinking of you know Timothy and Titus have already been taken. So if it's another little boy, we'll just change Titus to second Timothy and then give the new baby a Titus. So, first and second Timothy and then Titus. And so, anyway. Uh, you are uh, welcome to pray for us. The more kids I get, the more dad jokes I get. It's kind of bad. Um, so I have a good mentor with Kyle Orell in the dad joke department. So, all right. Well, today we are moving along in, our sermon, in the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus gave us in Matthew 5 through 7. I just want to begin by asking this question. What does it mean to be a Christian living in the world? Asked just a little differently, how can one live in Christ's kingdom while simultaneously living among the kingdoms of men? Now for generations, Christians have debated what a kingdom-shaped life should look like. Some, uh, for for those of us that have been raised in this particular generation, uh, have come to believe that the way to live a kingdom life is to separate completely from the world, refusing to go to the movies to go to dances, or to avoid things like alcohol and poker cards, as if that mystically had something to do with us being the people of God. Well, since then, others have run to the far extreme, claiming that what the world can do, I can do better. And the result of this extreme reaction is that many professing believers and Christians and churches have taken on a form that looks almost exactly like the world falling in line with the world's moral revolution, inventing new standards of right and wrong and unhitting from that which has been deemed by men to be antiquated and out of touch with modernity. And of course, a large portion of individual, uh, of individual professing believers fall somewhere in between that line, right? We all have our own standards of libertarian theology and legalistic theology, right? We all have our own standards What's right? Well, whatever I'm doing, what's wrong? Whatever they're doing. Okay, that tends to be somewhere where we fall, and that's how we try to be kingdom citizens in the world as we set up these new rules of what's right and what's wrong. So which is it? That's the question. I mean, we're going to see this increasingly played out in our world as the world continues to fall further. It's not even... It's not anything new that the world is distant from God that's been true since Genesis 3. But as America in particular and as our cultures and postmodern world continue to shift away from God, how are we to be the church and to be Christians? Are we to distance ourselves from the world? Or are we to become like the world? Are we to disassociate? Or are we to accommodate? Now this... Tension holds great significance for all of us who want to live faithful in our context. What do you do when you live with an unbelieving family member? Do you cut them off? Ignore them? Walk straight past them? Lock yourself in your room? What do you do about your job when you work with all kinds of people and all sorts of people who don't agree with your moral standards or your doctrinal stances? Do you hold yourself up in your cubicle? Put in your headphones, listen to old Billy Graham sermons and try to shut them out and tell them in no uncertain terms that you are not friends with people like them. Are you afraid when you're in those kinds of contexts what other people, other Christians might think about you being friends with those kinds of people? As will be seen in Matthew five thirteen through 16, the answer of living a faithful life in a fallen world, is neither separation nor syncretism. It's neither separation nor accommodation. We are not called to separate from the world, but we are also not called to replicate the world. Jesus teaches us in this passage how to live a distinctly godly life while living in an ungodly world. And the goal in this is that God will be glorified in the world through our faithful witness. Now, recall that the Sermon on the Mount is intended to teach us how to live in the now and not yet reality of the kingdom, right? The kingdom has come in Christ, and yet it's not been fully completed and consummated in the world. So we we still have things like death and oppression and racism and uh, political divides, and kingdoms of the world are still out there, right? Because the kingdom hasn't been fully consummated just yet, and it won't be until Christ returns again in his second advent. But Jesus wants us to not wait for his second coming to live as people of the kingdom. He offers us that ability now. The Beatitudes in Matthew five, one through twelve taught us how to flourish even in this now and not yet reality. And now we get to Matthew five, thirteen through sixteen, which teaches us how we're to view our lives in this now and not yet kingdom. And it comes right on the heels of Jesus saying that we can flourish even in persecution. He uses two metaphors that describe the kingdom life in a fallen world. Namely, he speaks of his people as salt and light. And these two metaphors stand together. They describe each other. It is two metaphors that speak of one mission for the people of God. Jesus says this in verse 13. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Now, in those days, salt was used for lots of different things, preservation, purification, and seasoning. And I think in this case, it's pretty clear that Jesus is talking about seasoning, about the flavor of salt. Salt is meant to be tasted. And tasteless, unsalty salt is good for nothing to be, but to be thrown out and trampled upon. And so here we have that tension again. It's distinction from the world, right? Salt. And yet the call is to be among the communities of the world, to be salt of the earth. And his warning is clear. Either salt will remain distinctly salty or else it will be thrown out, good for nothing. As kingdom citizens who live in a fallen world, we are called to remain distinct in the world. We must not lose our distinction or else we have lost our purpose. There's a fine line between, between contextualizing and syncretizing, right? When we as believers do what we can to strategize how to effectively communicate and bring the one true gospel to those around us, we are contextualizing. We're trying to bring the, the gospel into our own context, and to the people around us in terms and in ways that they will understand. But when we then try to change aspects of the gospel... Maybe we don't want to talk about sin that much. Maybe we don't want to talk about Jesus being the only way to heaven. Maybe we don't want to talk about a blood sacrifice. Well, when we get into things like that, now we're looking at syncretism. We're looking at accommodation. I think it's absolutely true. We should do everything we possibly can to contextualize the gospel into our own community. While at the same time, we mustn't change anything about the gospel itself. Regardless of where you go, the message of the gospel stays the same in every single context. God is the creator. God is the creator of the people who go to the GOP political party that you attend. And God is the creator of the people who sit in the pub. God is the creator. All have sinned. All have sinned. And because of that, the wages of sin is death. Jesus, being the gracious Savior, the Son of God, perfect in perfection, perfect in obedience, perfect in righteousness, died, took on our sin to forgive sin, and then rose again that we may have life, and is in no uncertain terms, regardless of political parties, regardless of places, regardless of social classes, there is only one name given among men by which we must be saved, and we must trust in Jesus. And my friends, that's what makes us distinct, is that gospel. What makes you distinct isn't that you don't play poker. What makes you distinct isn't that you wear red hats and go around talking about your political parties. What makes you distinct isn't that you put provocative Facebook posts up about your Democratic Party, just to be an equal offender. What makes you distinct is the one true gospel. We like to throw up all these things that make us distinct people of God when in reality it's very simple. Those who believe that Jesus is the one and only Savior of mankind and that there is no other hope in the world to be saved, those people are salt and light. That is the distinct message. That is what makes us salty people. Nothing else. I did choose salty people intentionally. <laughs> without that distinct witness, without that saltiness, our presence in the community is good for nothing except to be thrown out and trampled on under people's feet. Jesus employs a second metaphor in verses 14 through 15. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp... And put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to the whole house. Though the metaphor has changed, the meaning means the same. It stays the same. Salt is meant to be tasted, right? Any cooks in the room, you put salt in food, right, to taste it, right? And some of you have been to breakfast with, and you're just like, like, yeah, I'll be at your hospital visit next week, next month. But you put salt on food to taste it. Well, what's the purpose of light? For the same thing, to be seen. Salt is meant to be tasted. Light is meant to be seen. Flavorless salt is useless. And in the same way, a hidden light is nonsense. To paint paint the the front end of your flashlight black is stupid. That is is dumb. Don't do that because it's nonsense. Whereas Jesus subtly implies the impossibility of salt not being salty, He actually comes out outright and says it is impossible for a city on a hill to be hidden. Not only that, he wants you to see how absurd it would be to light a lamp and then to put the lamp under a basket. Who would do that? Why would they do that? The reason a person lights a lamp is so that it will give light to all in the house. Now here's the point Jesus is making. If a hidden light makes little sense, so does a hidden testimony. So do hidden Christians, these secret saints. Light is meant to be seen, just as a believer's testimony to the gospel is meant to be seen and heard. Christians whose faith is tucked away into their private Sunday church attendance is no different than lighting a lamp and then putting it under a basket Monday through Saturday. Instead, Jesus calls us to light the lamp and to put it on the lampstand for all to see. He says as much in verse 16, where he says, in the same way, let your light, it's actually imperative, shine your light before others. And in the same way means that he fully intends for us to be that city on a hill that cannot nor will not be hidden. We will be the lamps put on the lampstand, giving light to all, not under a basket, Now, let's just put these metaphors together for just a minute. These are two different metaphors that speak of one singular mission. Here's what he says. In the same way, let your light shine before others. Why? So that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. I think verse 16 applies to salt just as much as it does to light. The purpose of being salt and light is that people will see our good works and give glory to God. The way we live displays who we love and serve. That's the point of your life. Everything you do as a kingdom citizen, who you love and serve, must be seen in the way that you live and speak, the way that you post on Facebook, the Twitter, the, the, the things you put on Twitter. I don't do Twitter much, and so I don't know much about Twitter. I'm long-winded, and so it never has enough space for me anyway. Thank you. The point is, is that everything you do, eating, thinking, drinking, speaking, playing, working, parenting, doing marriage together, everything you do should be bent on that one singular mission. And what's that? That God is glorified in our little corner of the world. My friends, I love being a a missional church. I love being a part of a missional church. I love being a missional Christian. I think our goals should be set on the whole world, absolutely. But far too often do we forget that God reaches the whole world as every believer focuses on their individual corner too. That's profound conviction in my own life. Far too often, I have begged for money, I have raised money to go across the world and never, ever cross my street. Nothing against mission trips. I think we should do them. They're, they're good. They're good for you. But in and of themselves, God's intention is that you will glorify God in your own little corner of the world as well. That your neighbors, your family, your non-believing spouse... Your grandma and grandpa that are dying without Jesus. The people that you live around, that they will see God and glorify Him in you by the way you live and speak the gospel to them. Good works are the righteous things that we do to display our righteous God. Now the word glorify is an important verb here, I think. It does not describe people simply saying good things about God. It describes people's confession and praise of a God who is worthy and beautiful. When someone glorifies God, they see him as holy, powerful, worthy, majestic, wonderful. This is similar to what Peter says in 1 Peter 2 9 when he says that believers are to live as holy people so that we might proclaim what? The excellencies of God who called us out of darkness and into light. He goes on to say, keep your conduct among the Gentiles. And here he's not talking to Jews, he's talking to Gentile Christians. And Gentiles here is now a metaphor for those who are outside of the covenant of Christ. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. In other words, live in such a way that even those who hate God and you by implication will be forced to reckon with God's glory as it's displayed through your faithful testimony as Christians when God comes. My friends, far too often people hate Christians because of what we do. And what we do is detestable sometimes. My friends, if they're going to hate us, let them hate us for the righteousness that we present. Not because of our offensiveness or our meanness or our hypocrisy, but because of the way that we live in such a way that we want them to see our righteous God. We want them to see the one that we love and serve. Our whole life is meant to be lived in this way that it will show who God is. You are an ambassador of Christ. You are a representative of of who your Savior and your God is. And people must see that clearly in the way you speak, in the way that you live, in the way you do all things. This goes back to your fundamental purpose is being made in the image of God. Now, when we sinned and because of the fall, the image became tainted and marred. But by Christ, we are being renewed to the image of the Creator, which means that we, as Christians, through our faith, by the grace of God, are able to image our God in a way that wasn't previously cap- that we weren't previously capable uh, before we believed in Jesus. We are able to image God. We're able to represent Him. We're able to show the world what He's like. The world sees God as holy when we speak of His holy nature and live accordingly. They see Him as love when we speak of His love in the gospel and live out that love for others. So, the mission's clear. Live in such a way that the world sees God clearly as the one whom you serve and love. Now, it's worth asking, have the things I've done this week been a clear representation of God? Have the way I've done things this week been a clear representation of God? We're talking about this natural way of living in front of people as people who love our Lord. Now, I think this comes with all kinds of implications. Admittedly, to live a kingdom life while living in the world, is a particularly difficult task. I mean, you should see how white people turn when I tell them I am a pastor. I mean, it's great. Going down to a downtown Dallas coffee shop and getting to sit down and getting to stir up conversations. Well, what do you do? Ah, uh, you know, I'm a pastor. Ooh, I, sorry for the cuss words I said earlier. You know, it's, just, it's just one of those things that never goes away. It's, it's increasingly difficult for me to always think through how hard it is. It's it's just difficult. How difficult it is for us to live a kingdom life in the world, in this world that's fallen from God. And no Christian's able to do it perfectly. We all could critique each other in the way that we're doing it, right? But it is our unique calling nevertheless. This is what we're called to do. Live distinct in the world. We must be clear about what Jesus has commissioned us to do. My friends, your job is not to repeat the Pharisees by making new rules and laws that are extra biblical and saying that this is what holiness and distinction looks like. Simultaneously, your job is not to throw out all the things that God has said are good and holy and worthy. I'm going to say something very provocative here, and I mean it absolutely from the Bible. A person who is braggadocious in spirit, who is not meek, who is not pure in heart, but stays away from all forms of alcohol, poker cards, and all those kind of people, is just as ineffective and unpleasant to God in their ministry as the professing Christian who is smacked drunk outside the poker hall. I've had to deal with that a lot in my own life. My legalism and my libertarianism, neither one makes me an effective Christian. Neither one makes me an effective witness. I can say all the things I'm for and all the things I'm against, but ultimately, if it's not the things that are gospel-centered, they're not the things that are going to give me a distinct witness in front of people. My friends, that's that's the point here. The Romans, back in Jesus' day, were not glorifying God. They were idolatrous. They were Gentile, pagan-like people who were walking around slaughtering people and having questionable morality. Neither were the Pharisees effectively glorifying God. And they were the most self-righteous people you could meet. Now, in this whole topsy-turvy world of the gospel... Who glorifies God? The prostitute who weeps and washes Jesus' feet. That's the point, I think, here. The distinction is not whether you're legalistic or whether you're a libertarian, but the distinction is based on who you love. What makes you a flavorful Christian in a tasteless world, what makes you a bright light in the darkness is only a love for Christ. I think that's the implication for our daily lives. I think we have, we have three important things to think through when it comes to living this out. I get a lot of people all the time emailing me, hey, I want to live more evangelistically or I want to do more gospel-centered work in my community. I want to reach my neighbor. What do I do? And I, and I love those questions and I'm, I'm, I'm very happy to see people wanting to move. But the very first thing to do is this. The very first thing to do is to realize who you are. Notice what Jesus says. He does not say, let your light shine before others, and then say, you are the light of the world. He says first, you are the light of the world, and then says, let your light shine. He begins with who we are. He begins by reminding them that who they are then goes into what they do. Our mission as evangelistic Christians, as people who want to see others come to Christ, begins with recognizing who we are in Jesus. It stems from that. Evangelism is not just about methods. We, we prioritize methods so much, whether it's giving out tracts, whether it's knocking on doors, whether it's you know doing three circles or... The the e fold, or whether it's doing some other method that somebody will create tomorrow, without ever recognizing that the most effective way to give the gospel is to begin by living faithfully to who Christ made you as light of the world. It's kind of cyclical. Now, this is not to advocate for an evangelistic model of presence. I was a missionary in in East uh, East Asia. And, and far too often I met missionaries whose missional strategy was just to live, and then people will see, and then maybe someday that will lead to a gospel presentation. I'm not, I don't think that's what's being abdicated here. That's definitely not a missional strategy that I would say is, is good and worthy. It's not a whole uh, uh, share the gospel and, if necessary, use words. You have to use words to share the gospel, okay? But you also have to live it out. Far too often, we tell people about trusting in Jesus without fully trusting in Jesus ourselves. We go out to our community and we speak of the hope of the world, which is Jesus Christ and Him Himself, and yet we elevate our political candidates as if they're the hope for the future. My friends, the fact of the matter is, is we implore people to find satisfaction in Jesus, as we are finding and have found satisfaction in Jesus already. We're not meant to be hungry bread givers. We're meant to be people who are feasting on the bread themselves and giving out the bread from there. We're not meant to be thirsty water givers. We're meant to be drinking deeply. And as we're drinking deeply and the water of life is dripping down our chin and we're going... (sighs) That's good. You should drink that. You, you wonder, and I've, and I've done this so often, I've wondered why am I not more effective in evangelism? Why do, do, does my neighbor not respond? Now, there's an, there's an aspect where I have no control over that. Okay, He's an independent person and God is sovereign over breaking hard hearts. But at the same time, there's sometimes we, we create our own obstacles we talk about the bread of life, but we're mangy, starving Christians. We talk about satisfaction, how he can quench everything, quench every thirst that we have, and yet we grumble and moan when we're dissatisfied. My friends, the goal of being a Christian is to be deeply satisfied, to be fattened in Jesus. And then from there to say, taste and see, the Lord is good. That is, I think, one of the ways that Jesus is telling us how to be light in the world right now is to simply be who we are. And from that, let that overflow into gospel conversations. If you're truly satisfied in Jesus... If you're truly drinking and eating deeply of the gospel that you believe in, that'll come out in your conversations. That doesn't mean you don't have to be intentional. We're going to get to that in a minute. But it does mean that light just shines in and of itself because it's light. It doesn't have to necessarily do anything. It just does it. Because of who it is. As Christians, we are little Christ. We are those who are followers of Jesus, meant to represent Jesus. So how do you help others follow Jesus? First and foremost. There's other things to it. But first and foremost, follow Jesus. Second, it's important to see the scope of our mission Filled, Jesus says that we are salt of what? Of the earth. Light. What? Of the world. Wherever the world is defines your mission field. This naturally includes your homes and your families. I think it begins there. I think that's where your world begins is is helping your wife or your husband know Jesus better. Your children knowing Jesus better. Our workplaces, our schools, our marketplaces, and anywhere else we might venture. The world extends beyond our backyard and beyond our living rooms. My friends, we're not called to hole ourselves up like hobbits away from the world. Man, we've got our favorite Christian coffee shops. We've got our favorite Christian gyms. You can go to Christian gyms. We even have Christian mechanics where only Christians get their cars fixed. What if, what if we just kind of flipped it on its paradigm a little bit. What if we stepped into Starbucks with the intention of befriending people who might not know Jesus? What if we invited our crude and rude neighbor to watch the Super Bowl in our living room to stick his hand in our bag of chips? And to eat our salsa or guacamole. What if we did that? What if, what kinds of conversations might come up if we invited, instead of listening to audiobooks or listening to our favorite podcasts, whatever, what if we invited our, our coworker who lives next to us to carpool to work? They've got nowhere to go for 45 minutes day after day, I'm sure you might find an opportunity to talk about Jesus. Our distinction as Christians does not mean we are to live at a distance. How many non-Christian friends do you have? I don't don't ever go where non-believers are. Well, great. Go. That's how you begin, going to a mission field. Intentionally go out of the way. Jesus set the pace. He didn't go around Samaria. He went to Samaria, in Samaria, waited by a well for an adulterous, unworthy woman to stir up a conversation about water that satisfies. I love white rhino coffee. I'll go any day. But it's funny how many pastors and youth pastors I meet in white rhino coffee. We can talk about theology all day. But why not go to the weird place downtown in Bishop Arts where there's a bunch of people not like me so that I can share, the Jesus, share Jesus who has died for sinners like me. Our distinction's not meant to separate us, but to help us live on mission. Now, in my experience as a missionary and pastor, I have found that the most impactful evangelistic ministries are those that focus on growing organic relationships with people immediately around them. Now, far too often people have used that as an excuse to never really get to the gospel, so that's not what I'm advocating. But I am saying that the gospel grows the deepest in the soil that you work the longest, okay? The gospel grows the deepest in the soil you work the longest and the most intentional. The deeper it goes, the longer you're there with people. Again, this is not to say to not board a plane and go to a mission trip. You should definitely do that. That will help you. That will sanctify you. That will grow you. And it's not to say that we shouldn't go around knocking on everybody's door. However, sometimes I feel like we choose the easiest route. The easiest thing to do is go around knocking on people's door. The more difficult and yet the more effective thing to do is to have a bunch of buddies around your fire pit that you intentionally invite over time after time after time and bring the conversation to the gospel. Now, to be sure, you'll have our church probably won't win the baptism of the state patch, right? We're, we're not going to win the baptism award for how many people we're baptizing because it takes some work and it takes some time. But here's the thing that might happen. We might see alcoholics come to Jesus. We might see fallen people be restored in a relationship with God. We might see some people who have this idea that Christians are self-righteous actually have their perspective flipped upside down and actually want that Jesus. Because he doesn't look like the Pharisees. He looks like the Jesus that sits at the table with sinners and tax collectors. My friends, to be salt and light, we must begin by being salt and light in our immediate context, shining the light to whoever is around us and wherever we go. We are to be friends of sinners. Friends of sinners. We sing that song, right? Right? Jesus, friend of sinners, and yet we shame Christians who are friends with sinners. You are not going to hell because you're a friend of sinners. You're being missional. For Jesus, being a friend of sinner, meant having ragamuffins, tax collectors, sinners, prostitutes at his dinner table. It meant showing kindness to an adulterous woman while everyone else wanted to stone her. It meant deliberately traveling through Samaria, like we've already said, to meet the woman that everybody else is trying to get away from. It meant touching lepers. Boy, that was intentional. Jesus could have just spoken and let the guy be healed. He touched him to prove the point. By doing these things, Jesus demonstrated the kind, welcoming, gracious hand of God toward unworthy sinners. Now, I don't want you to hear. I'm not saying, hey, go get drunk so you can reach your drunk buddies. I am saying, stop thinking that you can't reach your buddy because he has a beer in his hand. I'm saying, go over there, invite him over to your table, eat with him, talk with him, build a relationship with him, love him. And as you love him, continue to speak about the God that you love and serve. Jesus sat at the table intentionally to show sinners that God was inviting them to the table. Who Jesus ate with was an illustration of what was happening in redemption. Now, there's a lots of different ways you can live out this organic mission. We offer our food and a seat at a table. I, I think, you know, if you want to begin being evangelistic, here's a simple thing. Knock on your neighbor's door invite them to dinner. First step, very easy. Knock on your neighbor's door, invite them to dinner. Get to know their name, get to know their spouse, get to know their story. Share yours. Talk about what's important to you. Jesus being high on the list and number one on the list ought to come up in the conversation at some point. There's other ways. In Philippians, Paul says that we can actually be light of the world just by not grumbling and not disputing with one another. So that might be a second step. Invite your neighbor to dinner with you and then quit disputing and fighting with everybody in the church. Quit grumbling. You can be light of the world that way. And then here's an often overlooked one. Just show consistent Thoughtful, sincere acts of kindness. What the Bible calls chesed. With the intentionality that you will then talk about the God who has shown you kindness. With the intentionality to explain that you want to be nice and kind and loving to people because you have a God who has been kind and loving to you. How? Great, then tell them the story of Jesus and the cross. Now third... We do all this to glorify God in the world, to glorify God in our work, to glorify God in our families, to present the message of reconciliation as we plead with people to be reconciled to God and Jesus. Now, we take these three implications of, the gospel, of, of what it means to be salt and light. Here's what we see Number one, be salt and light. Number two, be salt and light in the world. Right. That that means don't go around, don't go away, don't turn your back, don't close your eyes, don't put your head in the sand, be salt and light in the world, be salt and light in the world while living an intentionally gospel-centered life, speaking intentionally gospel-centered words so that people will come to believe the gospel. Be faithful followers of Jesus. Be faithful followers of Jesus in the world. Be faithful followers of Jesus who live intentionally gospel lives. My friends, I'm just speaking to people in Texas. If I were living in the East Coast or living on the West Coast, I might say something different. But for our church, I think one immediate impact is I think we need to understand that sometimes people feel like they cannot believe in Jesus because they don't vote for the same people you do. Or because they don't avoid the same entertainments that you do. Or they don't make the same wisdom decisions that you do. My friends, do everything you can to shirk those things off. Pharisees didn't touch sinners. Jesus constantly broached that line to help show them love, mercy, peace, reconciliation. It didn't mean that he became a sinner. He was sinless didn't mean he gave up any truth. He was completely sinless. I uh, loved reading this last year, the story of Rosaria Butterfield, uh, who describes herself as a former lesbian activist. Most of us would have shut the book right there. She was a former lesbian activist. And she became a believer not because she was out-argued, not because she was out-voted, And not because she was convicted by someone's social media post. Her conversion took time and intentionality. It all began with a pastor in the community, a guy named Pastor Ken, who graciously wrote her a letter to ask her a few questions about an article he wrote. And yes, he actually read her article. She wrote an article and published it in the paper about Christians and homosexuality. And so what he did was he, he disagreed with her. She knew that from the beginning. But the letter was so gracious and so kind, and he ended it with an invitation, please call me. And she did. She said, I couldn't help it. it, it, She said, it was the kindest letter of opposition I had ever received. And so she called him. They talked a little bit. And then she said, you know, I prefer discussing matters of disagreement around a private table. So he said, great, come to my house. My wife will make us dinner. And so she shows up to this 70-year-old pastor's house, and his wife is there. And she's like, uh, here, here's what she said. I really wanted to see how Christians live. I had never seen such a thing. She says, so I took him up on it, and I was excited to meet a real born again and find out why they believe such silly ideas. That was her whole motivation for going to, to dinner. She had never been to a Christian's table. That was number one. Number two, she wanted a reason for why they believed silly things. So she came. When she arrived, she found a very hospitable home. He opened the door for her. The wife gave her a hug. The wife knows that lesbianism is not contagious just by touching people, so she gave her a hug. They sat her down at the table, and then he prayed. And here's what she said. I had never heard anyone pray to God as if God cared, as if God listened, and as if God answered. It was not a pretentious prayer uttered for the heathen at the table to overhear. It was a private, honest utterance, and I felt as though I was treading on something real, something sincere, something important, something transparent, but illegible to me. Ken had made himself vulnerable to me in prayer by humbling himself before this God of his, and I took note of that. So during the meal, they start to have this conversation, and Pastor Ken doesn't jump into telling her why she's wrong. He just asks questions. Now tell me how you came to your conclusion. Tell me about your life. How do you, How do you? How did you come to the? Come to to write what you did in this article. She says, we didn't debate about worldview, we talked about our personal truth, and about what made us tick. Can you imagine that? Just a, one, one missional strategy, inviting someone that you know you disagree with and say, why do you tick? What, what makes you tick? What's so important to you about this issue? Ken and Floyd, that's his wife's name, says that they didn't identify with me, they listened to me and identified with Christ. They were willing to walk the long journey with me in Christian compassion. Guess how long it took? It was two years of weekly dinner meetings with Ken and Floyd. Now, most of us, or at least in in my past, I've I've had pastors that be like, come on, Ken, get to the gospel. But he was every single day, every single dinner meeting. They were making progress. Things were happening. Two years before she even stepped foot in the church. She even says that had he just jumped straight into it, she would have been long gone. So two years, a patient, deep, organic relationship. Ken became like a father, a true friend. Floyd was like a mother, someone who sincerely loved her. She loved coming to dinner with them, knowing completely well they would never, ever agree with lesbian activism. Two years before she even stepped foot in the church. Now, None of this meant that Ken had changed his mind about homosexuality. In fact, he told Rosari, he says, I accept you as a lesbian, but I don't affirm your decision to be a lesbian. He made it really clear. He accepted her, he loved her, but that did not mean affirming sin. He spoke of it that way, and that was attractive to her. She actually said that had he tried to come up with this reason for why homosexuality is not a sin, that she would have actually called him out on this contradiction, because she read the Bible, she knew what the Bible said about homosexuality, and what reached her was a man who loved her while at the same time standing firm on the truth. He accepted her, but yet didn't affirm. He loved her, but didn't begin to renegotiate and accommodate. Shortly thereafter, in April 1999, Rosaria Butterfield says that she felt the call of Jesus on her life. She repented of her sins. She believed in Jesus. And now she's writing books teaching people how to do the same. My friends, this is what salt of the earth and light in the world actually look like. The point is is that to be faithful, we must be willing to live as salt in a tasteless world. Quit complaining that the world has lost its flavor. It never had flavor to begin with. You are salt of the earth. You are light of the world. Too often we moan about darkness, and yet the Bible tells us it's always been dark since Genesis 3. There's nothing new in this generation. It's still darkness. You're called to be light. Instead of bemoaning that you're in darkness, celebrate that the light of the world has made you light. Celebrate that your flavorless, tasteless life has now been made salty again by the grace of Jesus. It's neither separation nor accommodation. We don't pull ourselves away from broken people in our context because we fully acknowledge that we have been and still are in many ways broken and we will never alter the gospel message. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who's a pastor from England, he once wrote, The glory of the gospel is that when the church is absolutely, absolutely different from the world, she invariably attracts it. It is then that the world is made to listen to her message though it may hate it at first. By being who we are in the world with intentionality, we cause the world to taste the salt, to see the light, and to hear the gospel of Jesus. Now, all this simply means that we're to give the same love that Jesus has given us, to do the same thing. He did not stop being holy, God. He did not stop being righteous when he stepped into the sinful world of men. But he stepped into the sinful world of men. The the first time that a cheating tax collector who stole money from people sat at his table, Jesus was still just as righteous, just as holy, just as godly as he was before that tax collector sat at his table. My friends, you want to know the beauty of it all? Your Savior invited you to the table. Why should you invite people that you would never speak to under normal circumstances? Why should you invite lesbian activists to your dinner table? Why should you invite those other people to your table? Because you were those other people when Jesus invited you. (coughs) You were the sinners Jesus came to save. His table fellowship invited you to reconciliation. What we do for others is nothing different than what Jesus has done for us. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. And then he shined and overcame darkness. And now he has given us the light of life. So that now we can say, we are lights of the world. Light came into the darkness. Sinful humanity loved the darkness more than it loved the light. So it crucified the light it buried the light but light cannot remain hidden the tomb was broken jesus raised from the dead in glory and in power also that to this day you can tell your neighbor whoever follows him and will not will not walk in darkness but will have the light of life my friends be salt of the earth be lights of the world understand what god has called you to And as we do this as a church together, it's my prayer, as we taste and continue to see that the Lord is good, that we will call others to taste and see out of the satisfaction that we have found and are finding in our Savior. Let's pray.